Hey guys, welcome to Turn Em Loose, a podcast about bird dogs and bird hunting. Uh, before we get started, I just want to remind you to go ahead and like it and subscribe and share. Uh, if you subscribe, then you'll be able to get the new episodes as they come out and you won't have to go searching. Well, let's get right to it. Well, guys, I've got a sponsor, a new sponsor for the podcast, and it's Electronic Shooters Protection, ESP for short, and the website is ESPAmerica.com, and they are exactly what it sounds like. They manufacture electronic uh, ear uh, sound attenuators, um, so what, uh, what I did is a... Uh, uh, I reached out to him and said, listen, I can, I'm practically deaf um, and I really like your product. I'd like to give it a try. It sounds like it's perfect for what I need. I went and got a hearing test and found out that, in fact, uh, nothing about any of my hearing is in the normal range. Uh, doctor said, uh, your right ear is about shot. Your left ear is not far behind it. Uh, he said, you're a left-handed shooter, aren't you? And I said, yes, I am. So apparently it's uh, noticeable, and I just thought my wife had been whispering all these years, and so I'm sorry, honey, it's me, not you. But anyway, um, these guys take uh, your ear molds that you have made and send into them, and they manufacture form-fit protection for each ear, and they will protect your ear from any noise over 90 decibels, which is... What it takes, um, it takes noise above that to damage the nerve in your ear, and that's what uh, will contribute to tinnitus or tinnitus, as they say, and also permanent hearing loss. Uh, I'm not sure if it's always all the shooting that was involved. It might have been the fact that I spent almost all of my life around jet airplanes. Uh, flying them and just being around them. But uh, either way, I thought I was being careful with ear protection and, you know, you know how that goes when you're growing up. I'm 68, so apparently it's uh, taking a toll on my ears. Um, I sent my stuff off to them, which was a copy of my latest hearing test and a the uh, ear molds that I had made. Uh, and they said that they would get my ear attenuators back to me in 10 to 11 days. It took exactly 10 days. So they are here. I've put them in. I put the batteries in. The batteries last uh, about six weeks. I put the batteries in and uh, in fact it's pretty it's pretty amazing. It is really amazing. Uh, I wore them all day just for yucks just to see how they work. Uh, they pretty much uh, I mean, I've never had hearing aids, so I don't know how they work, but uh, I could hear things that I wasn't hearing before. I was hearing birds chirp that I didn't even know or existed. Um, and so this is going to be wonderful for hunting because I'll be able to hear those birds flush, which is getting to be a real problem in field trials and uh, in uh, bird hunting, wild bird hunting as well. So as we go through this and I get more acquainted with my ESP ear attenuators, uh, sound attenuators. I'll let you know more about it, but right now it's uh, ESPAmerica.com. Thanks.
I'm on the phone with Jason Poole. He's a hunter access uh, bureau chief at the Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks in, uh, of course, Montana. And uh, I wanted to ask him about the block management program. Um, and it's been, well, I guess it was instituted around 85, 1985, Jason? Yeah, yep, yep, yep. So uh, prior to the mid-90s, actually, the the program was kind of landowner-hunter-driven. It was never really a state-run, formalized program until the mid-90s when the legislature authorized uh, some compensation and then also some other benefits like a license to be provided to the landowners who are involved in the program. So Uh they kind of did it on their own for a while. Um, Yeah, it was about 85 when the original program kind of kicked off. Yeah, and uh, I think I I heard about it. I think probably in the '90s. I was up there hunting, and then I saw that they're switching to this block management program. And basically, all I was doing at that time, I was just hunting uh, BLM land, you know, BLM and state land. And uh, this really opened up a lot. And I was telling the guy I was with, I said, "Hey, it ain't gonna work." <laughs> Boy, was I wrong! <laughs> it's wonderful. It's just a wonderful program. So there's uh, I every year I order a book from you guys and um you can get that online by going to fwp.mt.gov which is fishwildlifeandparks.montana.gov and then ordering the block management book and it's got uh, it's broken down by regions seven regions and uh, you can kind of pick the region you're going to be hunting in and uh, and they'll have maps they've got everything you need to do and then uh, so What's a guy got to do once he gets the book and he kind of arrives there in the state to hunt? Sure. Well, I'd say even before you before you get here, one of the big things to do, like you said, is to get that, that hunting access guide. It's specific to mostly our block management properties. And what that will do is kind of gives you an overview. And I know for your upland bird hunters, you're probably looking at a lot of eastern Montana stuff. Um, we get that get that book and then figure out okay this is the area I want to hunt this is where I'm going to stay this is where I'm going to sleep or whatever if you're not bringing a camper and uh look at those maps and then each of those individual properties that you see on the map basically has its own separate map as well and map and rules and so um you can kind of use that guide to get a real good overview and then kind of really drill down with using those individual property maps which also you can obtain every one of them from our website or some of our regional offices as well will provide those maps um, to, to hunters, and, and really those maps are kind of give you an on-the-ground overview, and then um, depending on how tech-savvy you are, you can actually save those maps as a geo-referenced PDF and use a free um, map reader, and actually it'll show you where you're at on the map in relation to the property boundaries, and it's really a, a neat service that's provided. But the biggest thing is to get that access guide, uh, figure out where you want to hunt, and then uh, go from there on the individual property map and how, how they take permission and or the rules associated with that property. Yeah. Okay. Well, so uh, they've got two different kinds of property, I noticed, type one and type two. Yeah, yep, yep. So type ones are generally going to be uh, no hunter restrictions, no limits on the number of people on the property, no limits on the number of vehicles in a parking area, so to speak. Um, they, there's typically a, a sign-in box, and you can see that on that individual property map. The sign-in boxes won't show up on the big overview that I was talking about, but the individual properties will have a little green triangle or a 
a green little square with a parking area that says here's the sign-in box, go sign in, and that's that's all you need to do for permission on those Type 1 properties. The the Type 2 are a little bit different in that they often have a, a, a limit to the number of hunters that are going to be able to hunt any given day or per week. Um, in, in essence, those properties take reservations. And so the big thing to do, like I said, when you get that guide is to figure out which property you're looking at, either Type 1, Type 2, and if it's a Type 2, you want to make sure you pay attention to that August 22nd date because that's the day that we will actually start taking reservations for all the Type 2 properties in the state. And some, sometimes the properties you have to call FWP, and, but most of the time it's actually making a reservation with the landowner or the ranch manager to hunt a given weekend. And, right. Um, that would be the, the best way to do that is to go, again, get that guide and, and figure out where you want to go, which type you want to hunt on, and um, and, and go from there. Yeah. Sometimes they're they're not hard to get a hold of, but I mean these guys are working their ranches and their farms, and so you got to realize that they're not going to usually be sitting around at one in the afternoon. They're going to be out working. <laughs> so, yep, yep, it, absolutely, uh, yeah, yep, absolutely. They, they, I mean, it's over six million acres of private land, so these guys are are just uh, being gracious and opening it up to the public, and um, it's just an opportunity that's there. And, and like you said, yeah, a lot of them are all uh, full-time farmers and ranchers, and so sometimes they'll actually you'll see in the reservations where you can only call between a certain hour time, you know, only 7 to 9 in the morning or in the evening after they get back in for dinner or something like that, you'll be able to tell. But, um, yeah, these are guys are, are – mo- most of these landowners are, are on the working landscape. Yeah, yeah. What I've noticed is over the years, a lot of them have gone from type 2 to type 1. I think they were kind of – you know, a little bit leery about letting guys on their property without them knowing who it was, and then they kind of switched over and said, "Hey, it's it's easier for me just to go to a Type One and give them a sign, you know, a sign-in box." And, yep, uh, yep, and let them yep, hunt. absolutely, absolutely. That, yeah, we, we actually get those comments from uh, from landowners too. You know, they might, like you said, start as a Type Two, but then after they get used to the the hunters who hunt these properties, they're they're more used to it. And oftentimes, the comment that I get from landowners is that they're their block management hunters are better than the public hunters that that aren't or or that are that they had on the property before their property was enrolled. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's good to know. I mean, you know, I travel from Georgia to hunt up there every year, and uh, I bend over backwards to do you know whatever I can do to help out. And I mean, I've rounded up cows and um, put out a fire one time, and you know, I tell them I'm going to be out here. So if you sure. need help, give me a call. You know, and uh, and I've had guys take me up on that. I I met some really nice people, real nice folks out there. So, well, now, so as the upland game part of it, uh, of course, I'm I'm hunting sharp tails and and huns, and later on, people will go up and hunt pheasant. I'm sure. So, uh, are these properties looked at by the uh, Fish, Wildlife, and Parks as far as to what they can support, or is there any clue that you can give us as to if there's probably going to be some birds on there? Um, as far as just, you know, species specific and how we operate it, it's each, each property has to put in an application and then it's evaluated by our regional biologists and or uh, enforcement staff. Uh-huh. Uh, those, those properties are then ranked and then scored within a scoring process to determine which ones we're going to enroll and which ones we might look at something else. But really it's up to the landowner to decide what species they're going to allow. So the program itself is, is designed for deer, elk, antelope, upland birds, and waterfowl. Those are kind of our 
five base species, and upland birds meaning it could be sharptails, it could be shades grouse, it could be huns, it could be pheasants. Um, those are the kind of the area that we look at. And so the landowners are really dri driving how many hunters they want, what species they're going to allow the hunters to hunt on their property, and then the, the time length or the time period. Uh, we, we actually look at it from September 1st is their kind of a start date. Uh, we have some properties that are open in, in mid-August, actually, for some archery antelope opportunity. Uh, but most of them look at that September 1st start date because there's a lot of things that happen, including the upland birds on that date. Um, and then they'll go go till January 1st. And so that's kind of the, the way the program is designed, is just that to, to help the landowners manage the hunters. Right, right. Well, I've noticed some of those up uh, – I was hunting over in – uh, region four for the last couple of years, uh, six and seven are typically, uh, where I was hunting the years before that, but I've been hunting in mm -hmm. four and that's sort of in the, the center north, north part central. of the state. Yep. yep. Yeah. North central Montana, Great Falls is kind of the hub for that area. They have got some monster block management areas over there. I mean, my gosh, you couldn't, I mean, you know, I, I always make a joke with my buddy. I said, well, my dog cover that in a day, but I don't <laughs> think so. It'd take a week. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some of these, some of these properties, yeah, you're exactly right. Some of these properties will go from, you know, a few hundred acres, um, might be a, a field corner or something like that to, to hundreds of thousands of acres. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, that's what you're seeing. Some of these ginormous properties that, that are out there and, and there's good hunting if, if folks want to get out and walk and look for it. You know, everybody, knows where the property is and so a lot of hunters will just drive the roads and, and they get you know don't see what they're looking for and so they just give up and go on to the next one which is which works i guess if that's the kind of hunter you are but um, if you want to get out and take a walk oftentimes because we go through a ranking process for all these properties and have to score them and just to make sure that we're enrolling some good property uh, yeah it, 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 there is good hunting and sometimes you just have to look for it it's funny you should say that because um I've done that when I get tired about, you know, a week into my hunt. I'll, I'll get tired. I'll drive along, and I'll look around, and I'll say, I ain't, I'm not doing that, you know. But occasionally, you know, I'll just jump out and say, I wonder what's over the hill. Well, what's over the hill was probably one of the finest days of bird hunting I've ever had. You know, I'll just go up over the hill, and it'll just level out, and it'll be, you know, sharp tail and hunt heaven over there. So, But it doesn't look like that from the road. So I encourage sure. guys to jump out and take a look, and, and, and really it's uh, – It'd be a lot. Uh, it could be one of the best days you ever had. So um, now, being being very familiar with BLM land, because I hunt BLM land all throughout the West. But um, if a BLM piece of property is inside a block management property, is that BLM land controlled by the block management? Rules? It depends on uh, not not. Not generally federal stuff. So the the block, the BLM and the Fed Forest Service stuff is is not controlled by or restricted by block management rules. Um, you got to be a little bit careful of how you're accessing it. So if mm -hmm. it's a isolate, isolated parcel, you know, if you're going to cross the private to get to it, and the private landowner says no, let's just say no open bird hunting on my property, and you go in there and, and cross their property and shoot a bunch of birds on the BLM and then come back out across their property. Uh, you know, it's gonna it's gonna take some justification, I think, if you were to be stopped to say this. You know, this is where I shot them. This is what I was doing, because um, the landowners oftentimes, I don't know. I'd say they don't control access, obviously, but they they can um, they can decide because of the that isolated parcel. Now, if it's a if it's a, 
legally accessible parcel, meaning it's coming off of a county road or something like that, and it just happens to be in the boundary. It, it's it's not not controlled by the the block management program. Um, yeah, it's yeah. public land like like uh, anybody else has to hunt. Sure. The the, the state stuff. Um, so there's some. If you look at a map, oftentimes they're blue squares. It's it's school trust land. Yeah. And I don't know if you guys have that much over east. I didn't have that growing up in Iowa, but no. There's a there that state state school trust land oftentimes will be enrolled in the block management program. And again, it's if it's a if it's an isolated parcel, you just got to be a little bit careful because sometimes they're they're enrolled and and actually the block management contract will will put restrictions on that public land if it's an isolated parcel and. Um, but okay. If it's most most of the time, if it's a if it's a state land and it's legally accessible, we're not putting any restrictions on it uh, more than what the state lands uh, agency does. Yeah. Well, and and I don't want to get too technical. I I had a sure. uh, inc- incident last year that uh, where I was hunting a block management area and um, I got down to the end of it and I was a long ways from any public road, long ways, miles, and. Um, it, on the border of it was a BLM piece uh-huh. that was uh, – it looked like it was inside another block management area, the sure. adjoining block management area. And, you know, I had a I had a covey of Huns pop out of the one where in the field I was hunting, and, you know, and I dropped one, and the rest of them flew right over and sat down in that BLM land. And I'm sitting there sure. thinking – I don't know whether it's legal or not sure. to cross into that. So sure. you know, that's I guess that's one where you know you could argue either way. But I yeah. Yeah. obviously did I did what I thought was the right thing, and I just I hated it. But I turned around either way. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. So you know, like I said, when you get those individual property maps, not the the big overview that comes in that book, but you right. scale down yeah. to each of those individual properties, it'll tell you right there on the map that. Uh, like I said, we don't formally enroll any any federal lands, but there are some state lands in the state, and it'll say formally enrolled state land. You know, okay. permission to the state land is is by block management. So okay. make sure you just pare it down to those individual property maps. And I know there's some some uh, some companies out there that do have commercially available products that will actually get you those those maps as well. But we do offer them free off of our website as well. Yeah, yeah, and I, I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to mention that. You know the the two big dogs are the Onyx maps and also the GAIA GPS. And I use have used both of them, and I've used the GAIA one right now, and it's got all those maps in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. And I also, but I also make sure that before I go on a property, that in fact that paper map that I get from you guys correlates to the GPS map that I have on my phone. Sure. Because uh, sure, yeah. I mean, you know, that just makes sense. You know. Yep, 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 yep. Most of those companies will actually use the – so we, we put out uh, boundary data uh, available actually for them to – any company or any individual gets the boundary data to be able to take. And then all those – like I said, all those PDFs, those individual properties that you could use like a Venza Maps or something for, those are all also available at no charge to the hunter. And so right. what's happening there is they're just using those um, – those free products and, and packaging it and making it a little nicer for the hunter and, and more user friendly, I think, for the hunter on those commercially available products. And, and uh, but you can get the boundary data um, through those products. And when you do that, it, but it, you just got to be careful. Like I said, you might see that this is a block management area and it'll tell you type one or type two, but it doesn't tell you that oh, there's no bird hunting on this type two or this type one. Um, oh just, yeah. Just so that 
So that's why those individual property maps, the paper maps, if it's type ones, we're going to generally have a sign-in box. And with the sign-in box, every box will have a map as well there. So if you're yep. on the ground and you're out in the field, those, there should be maps available at the box if you don't have good service or something like that or don't get it before you come out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good thing about hunting in September. Boy, those, those boxes are stocked, man. They're full, they're full of maps. They're full of everything. So good. Um, so the uh, – Oh, I had a question, but it just flew out of my mind here. But um, but anyway, the uh, all those comment cards that come okay. when you fill it out on the front, you want us to give you an idea of what we uh, harvested. And if we were successful, of course, I'm sure that's important for the program. Um, and uh, then what do you guys do with those? Is it, Do you keep it in-house or do you – if I call you up and say, hey, Jason, uh, how would you do on this – Block Management 101. Anybody doing any good over there? Is that uh, information put out or what? Uh, yeah, I mean, you can always, you know, contact. The, the best thing to do is to contact our regional offices in the area that you're planning to hunt. Um, most of those comment cards, uh, believe it or not, actually don't get turned in. And I don't know if it's uh, folks don't want to tell us where they're hunting or what they're harvesting or or what. But the biggest use and the biggest help that, that we've found with those comment cards are one for our scoring process on re-enrollment to see, you know, what are hunters seeing, what are they harvesting. But the second uh, big benefit is actually that the landowners want to know. Um, they want to know how hunters are doing on their property and what, what they're seeing for game. And right. um, I think they, they just they just want to be a good host. And so that's where those comment cards actually become helpful uh, to provide that information back to the landowner uh, on, on the comments that hunters had on their property. Yeah. I guess the last thing I'd say, too, is that you know, we, we're statutorily required to report on how hunters are doing on uh, the block management or our hunter access programs and, and um, just the success rates and what they're seeing for game is uh, another statutory requirement we've got uh, as a part of this program. Right, right. Yeah, that, that makes good sense. I know that if I have a good day on a piece of land, I'm hesitant to write that down. <laughs> yeah, those, like I said, those those get turned around and they come back. Nope, yep, yep, no, and that's probably why, you know, we don't see a whole lot of them come back, but they do help, like I said, they do help us from an evaluation, should we, you know, should we keep the property enrolled, it, and then, you know, we're not going to say, oh, well, Randy said that he shot two huns on this property if you called and you know, how is how is this property doing? We're not going to say this guy came and shot. You know, just the birds are basically being found here. There's an opportunity there. Yeah. Um, but yeah. really, it's it's for the scoring process, the reporting that we have. And then, like I said, the landowners, they really care about, you know, being good hosts. And they want to see hunters do well on their properties. And so the, those comment cards or the, the feedback that comes in will be turned around and reported back to them. Yeah. Well, that's a that's a whole other side of the coin. I'm glad we talked about that because I think that'd be important to keep that piece of property in the program. And uh, yep. and uh, yeah, that's just a, something that I hadn't considered, and I'm glad we did talk about it. Well, uh, there's other types of programs out there also that I want to make uh, clear to folks. There's open fields, uh, which is specifically upland game birds, uh, CR, CRP land. It's uh, Jason. You don't administer this part, so I'm not going to ask you to put you in a box here. But, <laughs> but uh, there's another one called the Game Bird Enhancement uh, Program, which is also it's administered by the same people that does do the open fields. And uh, and I've had success with both of those, and uh, those are also good. But most people are going to know about block management right off the bat. And I was hoping that uh, we could 
you know, it's it's kind of intimidating when you first get it and you get this big book and you go, oh my <laughs> gosh, what am I going to do? And but once you get into it, I'm telling you, it's a it's a wonderful program. I hope it just keeps getting stronger and stronger. I know that, you know, I know a guy with a big white pointer that can't hunt six million acres. So you know, <laughs> we need more land the better. But um, sure, sure. Well, Jason, is there anything else you want to say before I? Uh, well, I was just, just going to, you know, just like I said, I'll just touch base quickly on that, that Upland Game Bird program. And then, um, you know, the last thing I'd say, too, is that um, that these are private lands. And so, you know, oftentimes folks just think, oh, you're the fishing game agency. You're leasing this. I can do whatever I want. I can drive wherever I want. I can, you know, leave trash wherever I want because you guys are, that's what I paid for. Well, that's, that's not necessarily true. We yeah. Yeah. We compensate for impacts, and um, it's like I said, it's it's mostly private land that's enrolled in the program. Um, but uh, so just kind of treat it that way. You know, you're, you might be signing in a box, but it's the same permission if you were to be knocking on a guy's door and asking for permission. Um, right. So that that's what I'd say about that. The the open field stuff and all of our habitat enhancement projects. There's actually a separate access guide. So if you're an upland bird hunter and you want to just see just the upland bird opportunity through that. Uh, whether it be existing CRP, we've got enrolled, and they call it open fields. Like you said, there's it's just a walk-in, no permission required. You just see the sign and go. Um, those things are listed in a separate up and game bird hunting access guide because all the projects we do through our fish and game agency that uh, provide habitat or something or cost share with a landowner, there's also an exchange of public access that has to happen. So, uh -huh. you know, it, it, might, it might not be open and wide open. You might have to get permission, but um, the, the habitat enhancement stuff, the, the, uh, the open fields projects, those, those can all be found all in the, the I'd say the separate uh, Upland Game Bird Access Guide as well, and you can request that just like you can a block management guide on our website. Right, right. Wow, that's great. Yeah, I've had real good luck with that open fields, and uh, so that's good. So uh, one other thing I wanted to talk about, and I forgot to ask you this, and that is mm -hmm. who pays for this block management program? How How is it funded? Sure. So the way the, the block management or our hunter access programs are funded are primarily through um, a, a surcharge or not it's a it's a portion of a earmarked license so if you're a non-resident and you buy a, a non-resident upland bird license fifty five dollars of that comes to the hunter access program i think it's a hundred and ten hundred and fifteen dollar license for non-residents so half of that essentially comes to the the hunter access program we see a, a additional twenty eight and a half percent of every uh, deer and elk combination license that gets sold uh -huh. So a portion of that license also comes to our program. Uh, in Montana, we have a program called the Super Tag, which is basically a lottery, and they issue a, a tag uh, for a elk, deer, moose, sheep, and goat, and then antelope, mountain lion, and bison, actually. Um, it's just like a lottery where you can buy unlimited chances for $5 each for that Super Tag. That money comes in. We uh, we do use some federal Pittman Robertson dollars, about 1.3 million annually, to pay some of these landowner contracts. Uh -huh. And then we also have a, a few small private donations, as well as the National Wild Turkey Federation uh, contributes about 3,500 dollars every year through their state state program. So that's that's primarily how our, our program is funded um, across the state. Okay. Okay. Great. All right. Well, I guess we reached the end of our time, Jason. I really do appreciate your help. And, uh, you know, I, I always encourage anybody that listens to this podcast to, if you're going to hunt Montana, be sure and uh, get that uh, 
get that book and, and just become an expert. Read it from cover to cover. There's a lot of stuff in there, a lot of stuff that we, we skim over, but uh, it really does help you out. So I appreciate it, Jason. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, that's it, my friends, for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I am always looking for suggestions. And you can leave a message on the Anchor app, and it will come directly to me. Or you can go to my blog, abirdhunterstoughts.com, and leave a message there. Or you can go to Facebook, and my page is abirdhunterstoughts.com dash turn them loose any one of those ways you can leave me a message and uh, I'll get it and uh, I'll probably read some of the comments on the air later on got a book coming out it's called Endless October it'll be on Amazon Uh, paperback will be out shortly and a Kindle edition just a little bit after that and don't forget to try and be the man your bird dog thinks you are happy hunting (laughs) 